This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Your are tonight's headlines. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources is looking to sanction Enbridge Energy after it said the company damaged three groundwater aquifers while building pipelines last year. Enbridge is the same company that is looking to build another line, Line 5, across northern Wisconsin, a move opposed by the indigenous people who live in the region. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that almost 300 million gallons of groundwater have already been lost due to the damage on one aquifer alone. Another damaged aquifer has lost over 200 million gallons of water and is still flowing. In a third spill, the Minnesota DNR said it was not informed about the breaches for months after 50 million gallons of water had already spilled into a rare wetland area nearby. Enbridge was ordered to pay over $3 million for that one spill. The owners of the Cardinal Hickory Creek power line are filing an an appeal against a judge's ruling that blocks the line from being built through a wildlife refuge on the Mississippi River, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The Driftless Area Land Conservancy and Wisconsin Wildlife Federation filed multiple lawsuits against the transmission line project that would span from Dane County to Dubuque, Iowa. The groups claim that there needs to be a stop to the project to fairly consider alternatives while the owners of the line push to move the project forward while it's still being challenged in court. Utility executives with the project claim that the power line is the best option to connect clean energy to the rest of the grid. Attorneys from the conservation group's counter saying the line would transmit more fossil fuel energy sources than renewables. The owners of the transmission line are hoping to have it in service by December 2023. The City of Madison plans to rebuild and restore its Metro maintenance facility after receiving $6.4 million from the Biden administration's infrastructure bill. The Capital Times reports the city will use the funding to upgrade and improve the main bus maintenance site on East Washington Avenue. The site services up to 223 buses, though the garage was meant to house only 140 when it was built in the 1970s, according to a 2018 report by the city. Madison was the only city in Wisconsin awarded such funds, though experts think infrastructure improvements across the state are needed. Wisconsin received a C grade on the state infrastructure report card from the American Society of Civil Engineers, meaning upgrades and maintenance are needed for much of the state's infrastructure. COVID-19 testing and vaccination clinics at the Alliant Energy Center will start closing on April 3rd. According to a news release from the city of Madison, demand for testing and vaccination has dropped in the community. This site opened in May 2020, starting with drive-through and walk-up testing and eventually expanded to vaccine administration. More than 450,000 tests and over 110,000 vaccine doses have been given at the Alliant Energy Center. There are still many options to get tested and vaccinated for COVID-19 locally, including clinics at the Madison Public Library branches at Lakeview and Goodman South. Up to four at-home COVID tests can also be ordered through the United States Postal Service website. The grandmother of Tony Robinson asked a judge to allow homicide charges to be brought against the police officer who shot and killed her biracial grandson in 2015, reports the Associated Press. Sharon Irwin Henry, Robinson's grandmother, is using the state's John Doe law that allows citizens to petition a judge if prosecutors refuse to file charges. Officer Matt Kenny shot and killed Tony Robinson in May 2015 in the stairwell of a home on Williamson Street. Irwin Henry claims that Officer Matt Kenny lied about the events leading to the shooting. She also questioned his decision to enter the home without backup. WRT will have more coverage on this story tomorrow.
And now for today's COVID-19 numbers. There were 324 new confirmed COVID cases reported in Wisconsin yesterday. That brings the seven-day average of cases down to 331 per day over the past week. Additionally, there was one new death from the virus in the state reported yesterday. Dane County remains at a, quote, substantial transmission rate, with 67 confirmed cases of the virus reported in the county yesterday. There are also 27 people currently hospitalized in Dane County. And now on to today's top stories. WORT producer Nate Weggehout takes a trip to his hometown to continue our coverage of the 2022 spring election. He looks at the race for the District 30 seat on the Dane County Board of Supervisors. The Dane County Board of Supervisors District 30 sits in the southwest corner of the county, containing Mount Horb, Mount Vernon, and my hometown, Belleville. The two candidates running for the seat are incumbent Pat Downing and newcomer Jerry O'Brien. Pat Downing lives in Blanchardville and works as a builder of classical guitars and a piano tuner. He has sat on the Dane County Board since 2006, as well as the chair of the town of Perry from 1989 to 2013. For this race, he has been endorsed by Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett, the Wisconsin State Journal, and the village president of both Belleville and Mount Horeb. He served on the county's Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee for 14 years before being moved to the Public Works Committee, where he works with the Broadband Task Force. He says he is working outside that task force to find new ways to bring reliable internet to his district. While the Broadband Task Force will get results down the road, Charter was given some of the state money and, and has to use it in a certain amount of time, and they selected three underserved areas, two of which are in my district, and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we get some results from that. O'Brien declined to talk with WORT about his campaign and has not talked to any news outlets about his current election run. O'Brien joins a handful of candidates the Wisconsin State Journal has termed ghost candidates, board supervisor candidates who have not spoken with news outlets about their campaign. O'Brien told the Wisconsin State Journal that he did not like how he was treated by media outlets in past elections. O'Brien is a graduate of Belleville High School, where he continues to live and owns Road Rescue Towing. Previously, he had run against Downing for the board seat in 2014, where he lost by an exactly two-to-one vote. At that time, he had spoken with the Wisconsin State Journal about his issues with the county, saying he was concerned about the debt that the county had been taking on at the time. O'Brien has no campaign website that lists his current platform. Downing says that he is passionate about many issues here in the county, including his support for the new Dane County Jail. I recently um, took a stand and supported the building of a new pub, uh, a new jail consolidation project. Uh, public safety is is important. I mean, we are um, our task, our our mission as county board supervisors is to provide for the health, safety, and general well-being of our constituents. So it's just hard to break it down to to one issue. He says that his long tenure on the board has made him reliable to both his constituents and fellow board members. My experience, my proven track record of accomplishing things, uh, I've uh, I've been available to my constituents. I've, I've been able to help them 
find answers uh, and and wade through uh, the county departments uh, if they had questions. The 2022 spring election takes place on April 5th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The Oscar Meyer Special Area Plan was first drafted in February 2020. Since then, numerous sessions of public comment have been conducted. The Hartmeyer wetland has emerged as a sticking point in meetings. Local conservation advocates have been advocating to hold development on some of this land. WRT reporter Heron Splinter has the story. A group of Madison residents are voicing their concern over a plan to develop acres of wetland that is also, partially, a contaminated brownfield. It's called the Hartmeyer Natural Area and sits vacant just next to the site of the old Oscar Meyer plant. Beth Slies, who moved to Madison in 2016, is the member of Friends of the Hartmeyer Natural Area, a neighborhood group advocating to hold off on development for part of the wetland area. The wetland is home to an amazing amount of biodiversity. There's over 120 species of birds that live there. There's frogs, turtles, snakes. Um, you name it, and there's an ongoing returning pair of sandhill cranes that call it home every year. They migrate here to specifically nest there and raise young colts. Portions of the wetland are slated to be developed as part of a $300 million plan to build hundreds of homes as Madison looks toward the burgeoning housing crisis. Two weeks ago, the Madison Planning Commission voted to recommend reducing the size of wetlands that would be preserved during development from 16 acres down to 12 acres. That move has disturbed the friends of the Hartmeyer Natural Area. The property there was 30 acres, and now um, through the Oscar Meyer Special Area Planning process, uh, we managed to conserve 16 acres. The Common Council voted to save 16 acres for um, a potential conservation natural area park for public access. The property also contains a brown site from the industrial activities of the old Oscar Meyer plant, According to a Department of Natural Resources listing, it's the site of at least two fuel spills and is being investigated for TCE, a carcinogen found in both groundwater and toxic vapor. That pollution could be expensive for developers as they test, mitigate, and remediate the toxic chemicals. The DNR requires that developers take steps to mitigate TCE. The wetland is a small piece in a multi-year plan to improve the neighborhood in Northeast Madison. Building more housing to accommodate an expanding population is a key goal of the project. But the friends of the Hartmeyer Natural Area say they don't want any high-density housing, and because of the remediation required by the state, it may not be an ideal place for housing anyway. Chris Elhorn is a member of the Friends Group and lives nearby. When building happens, you have to remove uh, the uh, water that's accumulated underground before you would put in a foundation for a building. And that process in and of itself would dewater the wetland and kill it. The group says that the housing would destroy green space. They say they would prefer single-family homes. The housing in the area that's being proposed with through this rezoning is really intense development, high-density housing, affordable high-density housing. And it's not that we're against affordable housing, but I feel like a lot of times affordable housing is stacked. It's really dense and it's not very welcoming or, or family focused. And so we would like to see some of the housing less dense and maybe even encourage some homeownership for, uh, for families and support that process. Yet 
single-family homes could pose a problem for Madison's tight housing supply. Madison is the fastest-growing municipality in Wisconsin, and its population grew by nearly 16% in the last decade. According to a 2021 housing study by the city, Madison could be home to 70,000 new residents and 40,000 new households by 2040. The same report found that the supply of housing has not kept pace with the increasing population. The Madison Common Council is slated to decide how much of the wetland to conserve at their meeting next Tuesday. For WORT, I'm Heron Splinter. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier today, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway was joined by U.S. Representative Mark Pocan, a Democrat, to announce that the city will receive millions of dollars in federal funds to help build a new permanent men's homeless shelter. Earlier today, Pocan sat down with WORT producer Nate Wagihat to talk about why this project was chosen and how the money will be used to help build the shelter. Yeah, this is something where Mayor Satya had uh, talked to us about needs for the city, and this is something, as everyone knows, has been a, a big priority for the city of Madison. Uh, we were very fortunate to, through the last year's budget process, uh, able to secure an earmark for it. As everything with federal government, it took a little longer, another five months, but we got to the point a couple weeks ago. I'm on the line with U.S. Representative Mark Pocan of Wisconsin to talk about the press conference that he held earlier today. Representative Pocan, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Well, thank you, Nate. Glad to be here. So to begin, what brings you here for the press conference here today? Well, we've been going around the district talking about some of the now called community directed spending, but otherwise known as earmarks, um, monies that, uh, you know, a member of Congress who knows their district better than, you know, anyone in a cubicle in Washington, D.C. can help direct through the budget process. Um, but in a very transparent way. We've changed how we've done um, earmarks so that they can't go to private companies. They can only go to government or nonprofits. Uh, there's a very, you have to have your name attached to them, et cetera, et cetera, um, all through a bipartisan process to uh, really uh, reform them. Uh, and through this process, we were able to, you know, deliver a number of things to the district, including uh, today we were announcing uh, $2 million for a new homeless shelter here in Madison. You know, something that's a priority to the community. And if uh, we can provide that assistance, uh, something that I think is important for us to do as the federal government. And why was the men's homeless shelter chosen as the project to receive this money? From your point of view, why is this project important? Sure. So what we did is we reached out to all the different uh, local governments and, and others um, in the community and, you know, sought uh, information from them about a year ago. And uh, this was one of the priorities for the city of Madison that they were trying to move forward on. And I think just recently announced an actual location. Um, but, you know, if this is something that is a priority for the, the community and uh, again, we can help with some funding, we wanted to be a part of that. You know, we've done this uh, yesterday. We were in Beloit talking about some money for a boys and girls club that it was a, a very important part of helping them get additional dollars. Uh, we're, we're up in Sauk County in Reedsburg earlier today, uh, talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars we got for a community center uh, for redoing a, the entire gym of an old school that's going to be uh, used by groups like the Boys and Girls Club and others. Uh, you know, this is uh, part of what we were doing uh, while I'm home this week is kind of talking about some of those um, 
figures and some of those items that we got into the last appropriations bill. And you sort of alluded to it there, but where's this money coming from? This is from federal funds, correct? Correct, correct. Yeah, these are federal funds, and um, there are certain lines of federal funds that were open. So, you know, we had to work within certain parameters. Um, but again, this is part of a process. I used to serve on a, the, a modernization committee in Congress. It was an evenly divided committee between uh, Dems and Republicans. So obviously everything had to have bipartisan support. In that committee, we suggested how to um, do earmarks differently to make them more transparent and, and to make them done in a way that's clearly above any reproach. We largely took every recommendation from there uh, in the Appropriations Committee doing this. And uh, because of it, we're back to, I think, how we um, operated over a decade ago, where, again, local elected representatives, by reaching out through their communities, uh, best know how things can be spent on certain projects. And now the city of Madison, uh, the area here, we've had a lot of history with a permanent men's shelter, specifically how we haven't had one for years. How will this money help to bring a permanent men's shelter to Madison? What will this money actually do? Yeah, so we never tell any local community or, or a nonprofit that receives dollars how they have to use it. Um, but we knew that they were you know, needing a new facility. Uh, they had seriously um, uh, outgrown current needs. And uh, we were able to secure $2 million towards that effort. So um, how the city uses it, it isn't something specific as long as it is used uh, for uh, the new shelter. Um, but that's the whole idea, you know, not to be top down and, and dictating uh, exact terms, but to provide the assistance, you know, across various communities in the district where we uh, help them with various projects. And now there have been some issues with this new shelter, particularly how the new location was announced by the mayor without talking to the city council members who are representing that area. They're saying that the mayor is pushing this through without the process of talking with the common council first. Do you see this money helping to ease the city council members into being maybe more accepting of this new plan, new location? You know, I, I truly don't know because, again, the dollars weren't tied to any particular plan. And, again, we're trying to allow that to be under local control uh, for the alders and the mayor to make these decisions. So I honestly couldn't give you a good answer on that. But what I do know is we clearly have a problem with homelessness and affordable housing. And uh, this is one thing that we could try to help with from the federal level. From the point of view as Wisconsin's representative, why is this sort of project important? And are there any other projects here in Madison that you are sort of looking at that you see as important? Yeah, I mean, this was an important project to the city. Uh, the county had an important project working with Centro Hispano on uh, a new facility they're working on. We've worked with um, the Center for Black Excellence. Uh, I think we got a million dollars for their proposed project uh, on the university. There's a number of projects that we were able to help with, including uh, a $39.7 million uh, new agricultural uh, facility uh, to replace a World War II era uh, building that was sort of falling apart. Um, so again, you know, we reached out to a lot of the people that we work with on a regular basis um, in the communities in my district. And as people gave ideas, we just kept an overall database submitted uh, many of them for earmarks and were able to at least get uh, a number done uh, that I think will benefit people in the community. And when can the city of Madison expect to see some of this money? When will the transaction actually go through? It should be pretty quickly. Um, you know, our biggest thing is our, our 
budget technically ends September 30th. And uh, unfortunately, I'm in my 10th year in Congress watching the same things happen over and over. We never seem to get it done by then. Um, if we had a continuing resolution, which means you're just continuing to fund things at the previous level. Of course, that previous level is Donald Trump's level. So it was important that we were able to reprioritize funding and have a new uh, bill done. We just passed uh, an omnibus bill uh, two weeks ago, and it was funding in that bill that was the earmarked money. So now that it's approved, uh, it's really more of a formality in getting the, you know, the dollars to the various projects that they were identified for. And Representative Pocan, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me? No, just, I, you know, I'm glad that uh, this is something that we're doing again in Congress, and we're doing it right this time um, so that, you know, it is above reproach, uh, you know, so often we have tried for funding for various things and it's someone in DC who doesn't know Wisconsin and maybe has never even flown over Wisconsin um, is making decisions. You know, that's not the same as people on the ground and the fact that, you know, especially in a number of these, Tammy Baldwin and I got together and, you know, I supported on the house, she supported on the Senate, we were able to get it done. It's that kind of collaboration uh, working with our community leaders and community organizations that allowed us to get this done. So uh, I'm just glad that, uh, we're back to a point that we can do this, and I think it will be, in the long term, very beneficial for the people in the 2nd Congressional District. I've been talking with U.S. Representative Mark Pocan about federal funds being awarded to Madison to help build a new permanent men's shelter here in the city. Representative Pocan, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely, Nate. Thank you. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call talks with UW-Madison students about how they feel about the university dropping its mask mandate. Wildlife Weekly celebrates Easter early with a spring primer on rabbits. And radio astronomy is on the hunt for galaxies known for their resemblance to an iconic ocean creature. And I'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, producer Hope Carnop speaks with news reporter Ian Wilder about how students and student employees feel about the dropping of the university's mask mandate. There was a sense that this is probably the toughest time there's going to be and that many students felt like like a lot of the problems that are happening are temporary. Some, some students I talked to rely on their jobs financially and work a significant number of hours and even those students who, you know, they are admittedly stressed by that, by that amount of work on top of their schoolwork, they still feel like there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Hello 
and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. On Monday, students returned from spring break to a new reality, the end of the mask mandate in most places on campus. Masks can be worn but are no longer required in university buildings. Exceptions include inside the COVID-19 testing site at the university club, clinical spaces on campus like university health services, and on-campus buses. Students traveling back from areas with medium or high levels of COVID-19 have been encouraged to take an antigen test before returning to campus, which the university has been distributing. According to the university, surgical and N95 masks will also be available at the distribution sites at the two unions on campus. An email from Chancellor Rebecca Blank's office sent to students on Sunday said that one resource available to students who have had a serious physical or mental health condition this semester is a medical withdrawal. That was one point discussed between the Chancellor and the Associated Students of Madison earlier in March, which we discussed on the Cardinal Call two weeks ago. Today I'm joined by news writer Ian Wilder to discuss the end of this mass mandate and how one group in particular has responded, student employees. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Yeah, of course. I'm glad to be here. So we're recording this on the Monday morning after spring break. How do you think students are thinking about whether to wear a mask in classes and what are you kind of expecting in your classes today? Well, it's definitely going to be a stressful day for some, I would say, because, you know, it is college. It is still an environment when you're where you're surrounded by friends, you're surrounded by lots of people your age. And for some, that's a bit of a stressful situation because, you know, you're going to walk into classes and if you choose to wear a mask, you could be surrounded by people who are wearing masks or you could be surrounded by people who aren't, depending on your class, depending on its size. And of course, the university has requested that everyone stays respectful. And I believe that people will, but people who choose to wear masks and people who don't, you know, there will be like, especially initially after so many years at this point of people wearing masks, there will be this initial like, shock's probably not the right word, but there will be this initial like, wow, okay, this is new, this is different. Before break, you reported on the worries of student employees about the mask mandate ending. Where do some of the students that you talked to work and what were some of their specific concerns? The students I focused on in this article worked mostly at dining halls around uh, campus. And main concerns revolved around the idea that they work in close contact with lots of people in a day. That seemed to be quite a big concern for many student employees. And I think it's important to point out that out of all the employees I talked to, none were inherently against lifting the mask mandate. So it created a situation where some people were nervous because the guidance was still still underway for the dining halls and students just wanted access to uh, good masks and 95 masks which it seems they should have access to especially now after break but their main concerns surrounded the amount of people they're in contact with and yeah they felt that many people at work would still choose to wear masks but especially people like cashiers who come in contact with lots of people and with staffing issues being a problem right now, uh, they were worried about the potential impacts of it. You also reached out to UW Housing. What did they say in response to some of these concerns? Their response to those concerns mainly focused around that they are following 
campus-wide policies. So uh, the campus-wide policies as detailed quite recently was that if you are exposed to COVID, you should wear a mask for 10 days. So uh, university housing mentioned that that is the policy that they are following and that they continue to follow uh, the campus-wide policies Part of this issue is that UW housing is currently low on staff. How have student employees said that that has affected them? And what kind of things has UW housing done to respond to it? Many employees I talked to did point out a particularly problem that morale is posing to many of them and many of their coworkers. And the problem with staffing shortages, particularly at university housing, is that shortages cause more shortages. Uh, with less people working, people are more stressed. They're working more. Uh, some people talk to me about how they're doing. They felt two to three times more work than they did last semester. University housing has taken some measures to increase morale and increase pay. Uh, there's $200 referral bonus in place for uh, student employees, referring new student employees. There was a $1 lump sum bonus for every hour worked last semester. So they are, university housing is doing, it seems, as much as is in their power to aid student employee retention and morale uh, during these rather tough times for certain dining halls in particular. But many employees did talk to me about the stress of that. And some pointed out the reason they're quite stressed, but cannot quit is because they understand that that would make the overall situation just significantly worse for their coworkers, and there is a certain bond. So when I talked to some employees who seem particularly stressed, many brought up the idea that, you know, it would just make things worse for everyone, and I don't want to be that person. Is there anything else that students you talked to said that stuck out to you specifically? There was a sense that this is probably the toughest time there's going to be and that many students felt like like a lot of the problems that are happening are temporary. Some, some students I talked to rely on their jobs financially and work a significant number of hours. And even those students who, you know, they are admittedly stressed by that, by that amount of work on top of their schoolwork, <laughs> many of them were in tough majors as well, they still feel like there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that this is temporary. But what stuck out to me is that many were glad to talk to me on the sense of having their voice heard. At times we talked for half an hour to an hour uh, because they just they were just happy to get all of it out. Is there anything else that you think listeners should know about your story? I, th- I think at the end of the day, they still like their jobs. There's, there's always going to be complaints about uh, work environments. There is a, a strong sense of team in university housing and that they enjoy being there. You know, my article obviously brings forward the worries of many, but there is also many happy stories that I heard. They enjoy working there. They have a good time, you know, lots of friends, lots of good times. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story, Ian. Yeah, of course. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
Last Sunday marked the first day of spring, which means that pretty soon yards around Madison will be filled with baby rabbits. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares why rabbits are her favorite mammal and what works to protect the bunnies in our backyards. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the eastern cottontail rabbit because it's that time of year when we should all be thinking about rabbits. <laughs> uh, they're lagomorphs, which is their order, and their family is the Leporidae. I really love bunnies, and I know that probably sounds kind of strange, because I'm a bird person, but if I had to pick a favorite mammal to rehabilitate or work with, eastern cottontails are pretty high up there on my list. The reason that I like eastern cottontails so much is just because they have so much more to them than people think. Yes, they are kind of a simple mammal when we're talking about breeding strategy or their, you know, litters or their social interactions, but they're also very unique in certain ways. And so I thought I'd talk a little bit about them as a species, um, especially because we've had a couple of adults that have been in care here this winter for various different types of injuries. Um, we did highlight one on our Facebook page for the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. If you're not a fan, you should definitely follow us. It's a lot of fun because you get to see all the cool stuff we're doing in rehabilitation. Uh, but very recently here in the last couple of weeks, we released an adult rabbit that was in care with us since January. And we had found that with our diagnostic tests and radiographs, there were a couple of closed rib fractures. Uh, poor bunny. So it came in, it was incredibly depressed. It had a very poor conscious proprioception, which means like it, it really didn't do anything when we were trying to examine it. Like it didn't have any sort of reaction or response when we were trying to work with it. Not to the point where it was like moribund, which is something we'd use if they were not even aware of their surroundings, but really dehydrated, thin, and it had been down a window well for about three days before coming to our program. And obviously it didn't want to try to hop out of the window well because a rabbit, believe it or not, can actually hop something like five feet out pretty easily. But rib fractures are incredibly painful. And if you've never had rib fractures, which uh, I've known a couple people to have rib fractures, it is really, really hard to breathe and it hurts to move. So you kind of have to put yourself in that rabbit's position to kind of know what it was going through. And it was admitted and we were able to identify what injuries there were right away. And with those x-rays, we were able to start pain medications for the whole time. And rib fractures take a long time to heal. So, you know, two months later, finally, you know, we we're able to release this rabbit, but we were so glad that we were able to help it because otherwise it probably would have just been sitting there either in the window well, or even if it had gotten itself out, it probably would have been predated upon. And their natural predators really are most of our carnivorous animals here in Wisconsin. Red-tailed hawks love baby bunnies as prey, but so do great horned owls. And then, you know, even with the adults, you can definitely have our raptor species um, preying on them. But foxes and coyotes, weasels, bobcats, minks, uh, those will all be different species that do use rabbits as a natural part of their food source here in our state. Now, that being said, um, because I know that people are like, oh, there's so many bunnies around, Madison, oh my gosh, or the Dane County area, they're just everywhere. Well, yeah, that's because they do have a lot of babies. Their breeding season is uh, starting here in February and March, and it really goes until about September. And so we will be finding little itty bitty babies here anytime in the spring 
growing season. And sometimes female rabbits can actually have up to four broods. I would say generically, we see about two to three here in Wisconsin. But if you're going to go further south into like warmer climates or warmer states, you might see more litters. And usually there's four or five babies, but I have seen upwards of 10. So if you're in your yard doing a lot of spring work, uh, you know, maybe yard work, mulching, mulch piles are just like a common spot for bunnies. So please be careful if you've got a shovel or a rake or something, because half the time mom bunny puts a little shallow depression in a mulch pile. And then maybe that mulch pile accidentally gets delivered to your house. Um, you know, that is definitely going to be something to talk with with your landscaping companies just in case. But we really want to try not to orphan bunnies in this time period. So be very careful and cautious and look for a little shallow depression either in the ground, in mulch, in soil and they are lined with the mom's belly fur. So mom will pull out the belly fur and kind of shred it and some dried vegetation will be on there. And that happens a few days before she'll lay her litter of little newborn cottontails. They are fully eyes closed, uh, hairless. They're only uh, like 25 grams or so when they're born. And it takes them four weeks from birth to development to actually be independent. So only 16 days later. And so use your imagination. 14 days is two weeks, right? That's when they have their eyes open and they are starting to actually go short ways out of the nest to start sampling some of the vegetation. And that's how they get used to eating the greens that they are primarily depended on because they're herbivores. So they're going to be eating lots of your broadleaf greens, a lot of grasses, different, you know, clovers and other stuff, but they are definitely obligate herbivores. And then once they hit that four week mark where their eyes are open, their ears are straight up. If a baby bunny is about the size of the palm of your hand or a little bit bigger, they are actually independent at that age. So if you have a bunny nest in your backyard, just know that if they are pink and hairless and their eyes are closed, about four weeks later is when they're going to leave your yard. And for most people, they, they think, oh, okay, well, gosh, there's a whole lot of bunnies and they're like, what am I going to do with my dog or my cat and stuff? We have so many tips and tricks that we can help you with um, on our website at www.giveshelter.org or give us a phone call and we can definitely try to help you mitigate the situation. But what we want is that the rabbits are able to live their natural life with their parent for that four weeks until they go off and disperse on their own. They are not social. They actually really hate each other. They become very aggressive after a certain age point. So in rehabilitation, we cannot keep them very long. You know, an average weight of an adult rabbit might be somewhere like six to 700 grams up to one kilogram. Usually one keg is about what I say is an adult rabbit size. Uh, the baby bunnies, when they're at the age where they're released from our care, is only maybe 150 grams at the most. Um, so that's really small. But that's okay, because the longer you keep them, the more apt they are to fight each other in rehabilitation and injure each other because they don't want to be in each other's space. They only come together for breeding. And that is a whole cool thing in itself, watching the breeding displays of rabbits where they're chasing each other and the males sometimes are, you know, peeing in weird places. And it's just kind of cool. You should look it up and see if you can find any fun videos of the um, rabbit mating system. But regardless, they don't really have any sort of pair bonds. The male rabbits do not do anything to help the mom with her babies. It's just in and out and gone. So really mom is the one that's doing all of the care for the cottontails and getting that milk because they're mammals. And we really want them to have that natural life growing up. It is so much better for their development, behaviorally, nutritionally, everything else. Whereas in rehabilitation, it's really a last ditch effort. It should, should be the last option we choose because they have very sensitive tummies. They are very stressed in rehabilitation. So 
yes, it's inconvenient for a lot of folks that have like dogs in the backyard, but definitely encourage long walks, get out there and exercise maybe for a couple weeks instead of doing the yard. If you can go to the dog park, whatever else you can do, um, at least to let those bunnies be grown up with their parents so that they can actually stay in the environment and thrive. And we aren't going to save every cottontail from predation. That does happen still naturally. We really wish we could, but mom really does help defend her babies. And there are some great videos out there as well about how they will defend their nests and they're not even going to stick around near their nests so that a predator doesn't approach them because babies are born with not much very not much smell on them and so the adult doesn't want to be right next to her babies all the time protecting them because predators are watching for those adults so she's going to stay cryptic and hide somewhere under brush and cover nearby while she's eating and just kind of watch and you really won't see her come to feed her babies unless it's about dawn or dusk they tend to be a little bit more nocturnal than they are diurnal meaning they're often outside eating grass in the quiet nighttime. And that's generally where you're going to see your rabbit activity. And so generally, you don't have to make sure that the the dog stays away uh, from the adult. It might be more that they stay away from the babies or the mom and the babies if she's there present during a feeding time, if your dog were to go out in the yard. So be aware of those time frames. And instead of letting your dog out, if you know you have a bunny nest in your yard, definitely go for walks, do the dog park, and then call us for some tips about covering the nest during the day if absolutely necessary that you can't do anything more for your dog to go elsewhere. Cats are, of course, another whole nother ball game. But as it is coming to spring here, we would highly encourage folks not to have their cats outdoors during the baby season, especially because a good percentage of our admissions come from dog and cat bites during the baby season, which for us in Wisconsin is April through October. So you're going to find baby bunnies. I'm sure of it. We're going to start getting a lot of calls here. We've already had some to the Wildlife Center here at Dane County Humane Society, but we want you all to be prepared and aware and uh, see what you can do to keep your pets on leash and just know your area. Go out in your yard and scope out the yard maybe a couple of times here in the next few months just to see if you can find anything um, that looks similar so that you can prevent any sort of injury before it happens. That would be helpful for us as rehabilitators. So thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly talking a little bit about our eastern cottontail rabbits who are having babies right now in the spring. And uh, give us a call at 608-287-3235 if you have any questions about wildlife or you find anything sick or injured in your yard. Thanks so much for listening on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On tonight's archival edition of Radio Astronomy, host Melissa Morris explores jellyfish galaxies and what they can tell us about the universe. What's one thing that space and the ocean have in common? Jellyfish. Well, kind of. Welcome to Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and today we're going to talk about a special kind of galaxy named after one of the ocean's most bizarre creatures, the jellyfish.
In our universe, there are billions of galaxies, all of which have their own unique characteristics and different sets of circumstances that make them the way they are. Most galaxies we observe generally fit into two main categories. Galaxies like our Milky Way that are flat, disc-shaped spiral galaxies, and other galaxies that are huge, red, and puffy elliptical galaxies. What causes these to look the way they do depends on a huge number of factors, such as how they initially formed, how massive they are, how quickly they are forming stars, and where they are in the universe. You see, when astronomers map out where in the universe galaxies are located, this map doesn't look like some random smattering of locations. Instead, it resembles something that looks more like a spider's web, with some galaxies being located along strands of the web, and when those strands intersect with others, they are in crowded environments known as galaxy clusters, which can contain anywhere from hundreds to thousands of galaxies. This structure is known by astronomers as the cosmic web. A galaxy's evolution is dramatically affected by where it lies with respect to the cosmic web and with respect to other galaxies. In the strands of the cosmic web or in voids of space, galaxies tend to be more likely to be forming stars at a steady rate, while galaxies that exist in environments where they are surrounded by many other galaxies are more likely to have stopped forming stars altogether. The reason for this dichotomy in the way that galaxies look based on where they are is still a topic of much research. So what could be responsible for this? Well, it turns that galaxies aren't the only thing that exist in the cosmic web. There is also a great deal of gas known as the intergalactic medium that surrounds these galaxies. Much like how it's difficult for us to directly see the air that we breathe, it's also difficult for astronomers to directly observe this gas. However, we can see that it has an effect on some galaxies, particularly those in clusters, where the gas is at its hottest and most dense. You see, under the right conditions, this gas has the capacity of interacting with the much cooler gas inside of galaxies that's responsible for forming stars. As a star-forming galaxy falls into a hot, dense cluster environment, the hot cluster gas will exert pressure on the star-forming fuel within the galaxy, pushing it out of the galaxy entirely. This process is something called ram pressure stripping. If a galaxy loses its star-forming fuel, it will be forced to stop forming stars and will begin to look a lot more like other galaxies and clusters. Few galaxies that are going through this process have actually been observed, but when they are, they take on a very distinct look, that of a jellyfish. When the star-forming gas is being pushed out of the galaxy, it's stretched out away from the galaxy into long filaments that look like the tentacles of a jellyfish, while the galaxy itself looks like the jellyfish's bell. Jellyfish galaxies are exciting to observe because they are actively going through a very dramatic version of ram pressure stripping and can tell us a great deal about the galaxy's environment. One way to really understand these kinds of unique galaxies is by using cosmological simulations. These are simulations that start with a set of conditions informed by our observations of the universe and are set running, subject to nothing but the physics implemented by the code. 
In these simulations, it's easy to see the structure of the cosmic web and to see the wide variety of interactions galaxies can have with one another and with their environment. One of the largest and most widely used cosmological simulations at the moment is called Illustrious TNG, which stands for The Next Generation. This simulation shows millions of galaxies evolving over the lifetime of the universe in a wide variety of environments. This means that we could very likely see some jellyfish galaxies in the process of losing their fuel for star formation. That's all for Radio Astronomy this week, folks. This is Melissa Morris, and I am wishing you a stellar week. And that does it for our show tonight. Thank you for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Lai. Your reporter tonight was Heron Splinter. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wegehop produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. Mm-hmm.